0: everyone and welcome to the CSI Spring Series. My name is LB and we are excited to be with you all. Tonight we are so fortunate and excited to have all the way from the other side of the country, Dr. Rafe McCullough, Dr. Bob Nations, and the Reverend K. Monet Rice-Chalo to engage with us in a discussion about the influence of gender identity, sexuality, religion, and spirituality within a counseling relationship. Dr. McCullough is an assistant professor in the Education Leadership Department at Lewis and Clark College. His teachings and scholarship center on multicultural and social justice, counseling and advocacy, addressing aspects of identity and counseling, disability, uh, and affirming counseling practices of queer, trans, and non-binary youth and adults. Before his work at Lewis and Clark, Dr. McCullough served as a professional school counselor and clinical mental health counselor. Dr. Nations is a professor in the counseling department here at Wake Forest. Dr. Nations research and special interests focus on integrating spirituality in counseling, premarital counseling, couples and family counseling, and consulting religious organizations in transition. He is the associate director of, or sorry, for the online counseling master's program and serves as a pastor for the United Methodist Church. And uh, the Reverend Kay is Sorry, the Reverend Kay Monet is an associate chaplain in the office of the chaplain here at Wake Forest. She has been at Wake Forest since 2012 and is currently working on her doctoral degree at Duke Divinity. She specializes in uh, spiritual well-being with a current gravitational pull towards cultivating spiritual practices for descendants of enslaved Africans. She also populates a YouTube channel that intertwines African and African-American ancestral practices with Christianity. Um, We have seen how important identity is to many people this past year. And as we continue to learn throughout this Women's History Month, we can further experience the influence of personal identity in our daily interactions. Tonight, we want this conversation to add to our collective continued learning. Um, Our speakers have backgrounds in acknowledging the importance and impact of multiple identities we all hold. Um, So we hope that in sharing their experiences and perspectives, we can all feel a little bit more comfortable uh, recognizing and valuing the various ways in which we and those around us identify.
1: Thank you, LB. Thanks for introducing our wonderful speakers and thank you for coming with us tonight. We're so excited to have you. Um, And welcome to all those coming for the first time uh, that are in the audience and welcome back to those who are with us in previous sessions. My name is Bobby Lang, and I'll be co-leading tonight's discussion. Uh, Before we begin, we do have a couple housekeeping items. Uh, This is a comment I've made in each of the past two sessions. I think it's just important to note at the beginning. Uh, We wanna note that identity is complex, nuanced and multifaceted, and we only have one hour together here, okay? So while we will work to get the most out of our time, we consider this to be opening the door on these conversations rather than attempting to get to the bottom of everything. Um, So if you walk away feeling a sense of wanting more, that's to be expected. And just be mindful we're going to attempt to really dive deeper in future iterations of the series. Um, We also just kind of want to note with regards to cameras, if you can keep those on tonight, we would love that. That would be really appreciated. And um, additionally, we also got some feedback regarding questions. So at the end of our session tonight, instead of having the chat function as being our kind of go-between, we're actually going to allow you to ask those questions. So in the last couple minutes, we'll make space for people to be able to bring up those questions, and you can just ask them, rather than us being a go-between, kind of makes it more natural. Um, Last but not least, I think that's it. Actually, we're good to go. So um, with all that being said, I think we can begin this discussion. So um, if you could just each briefly describe how religion, spirituality, gender, and sexuality show up in your professional work, and Reverend Kay, if you would mind starting us off
2: make sure my mute is off before I start talking. So, well, first I want to say thank you all again for inviting me here this evening to you LB Snipes and to Bobby Lang for putting this together and making sure all the reminders went out so that I did not miss this. So when we're talking about religion, gender and spirituality and how it shows up in our work, I I want to start with a caveat first. Um, because I know that the background or the basis of this conversation is counseling. And a lot of times people use the language of pastoral counseling. And I am very keen about making sure, you know, we're having a pastoral conversation and that I am not uh, certified, nor do I carry a degree in counseling. And so one way that it shows up for us in identities are for those who, for whatever reasons, perhaps um, upbringing or their own levels of comfort, feel more comfortable talking to someone from a particular faith background versus a counseling center or a therapist. So we find these identities sometimes couched in certain communities that have certain levels of suspicion of the medical field or people who carry degrees such as, or titles of therapist or counselor and what that may say about them. And then we try to redirect. Redirect back into these professionals who are trained to have conversations that steer, in um, and, and, and some of the cases, mental um, health issues, whereas we try to hone in on things of the spirit, things of the existential kind of levels. And that is where you find a lot of your gender identity and your sexuality identities and, of course, within religion. Now chaplaincy, which is very different from being a campus minister, a chaplain typically is rooted in a particular tradition, but we do not minister to just that particular tradition. So we are geared across the entire university regardless of our personal tradition to reach into all of the fields. And so for those who come from a religious background, as they are trying to make sense of themselves, ask the deep questions of purpose and of meaning, meaning-making as we say the university system is all about. Of course, we, we gather a good swath of people who in trying to make meaning and find their own purpose, are grappling with parts of themselves that perhaps their religious tradition has tried to steer them away from. So whether it's a sexual identity that falls outside of the heteronormative standard or whether it's a gender identity that is something beyond the binaries of male and female, woman and man. So we find people there wrestling mostly theologically. How can I either move beyond the teachings of my my family or am I still acceptable to a deity, to God? Um, How can I make sense of my existence if we say God doesn't make mistakes but I feel that my entire identity is a mistake? one again the redirect uh, to to make sure that while they're talking to us they're also talking to a licensed professional, but also really grappling with the deep theological issues that people typically show up with, which at times clearly may not be an idea that they hold true to themselves, but they're grappling with their teaching and their training and the, the images and the messaging around them. So it shows up um, often. At our doors, you know, we we bring our entire identities with us. And that's something, especially in our office, we constantly want to encourage people to do to bring their full selves, but also in our work. We also have a level of justice work so that we can make it safe for your full self to show up. I know we love to say bring your full selves, not to a place that's not safe. And I think that's a conversation WAKE is continuing to have when we say to uh, minoritized groups, to LGBTQ plus persons, bring your full selves. Well, we also have to do the justice work to make sure the room is big enough and safe enough to hold people and brave enough. I think that's the language we've been using. You can never make a space completely safe that deals with humans because you cannot control human behavior. But can we make it brave enough and brazen enough that people can feel comfortable to bring their full selves?
1: Thank you so much, Reverend Kay. That that was wonderful. And a couple of things stuck out just um, that you note the opportunity that can come along with being in that You know, being a chaplain and somebody who's seeing multiple, you know, students from different perspectives, but also the limitations and being able to find opportunities to get other disciplines involved. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, And whichever one of you would like to go next, you're more than welcome. I know this can be kind of a a game sometimes, but I'm going to, I'm going to throw it out there.
3: I'd be glad to go. in my work, I was thinking from the perspective of being a counselor, I spend a lot of time working with couples, working with relationships, uh, so that's the context of a lot of my counseling work as well. Um, being an ordained minister, that identity sometimes presents itself to the people where, like Reverend Kay said, folks will come in with sometimes an expectation that um religion, spirituality will be part of the counseling relationship or the caring relationship that's provided. So it shows up quite often uh, from that perspective uh, what I'm aware of is how it shows up in counseling. Also from the, like the religion, spirituality, gen- gender, sexuality, they're always present for me as folks arrive, I begin to start listening to how do they sense their own personal roles because uh, what gets presented for counseling sometimes will be on all three, four of those levels. Um, uh, it really will be. So i listen listened seeing you know, is it a presenting problem for them? Uh, Is it an issue that they want to address as they're coming in? Uh, A big part of what I do is to to bring in an assessment of that. I listen to their personal roles. How do they identify themselves as father, mother, husband, son, friend, provider? So I'm collecting information always about uh, their own sense of identity in that. I'm also listening from a cultural perspective, too, and how do they identify themselves from the culture that they come from? Um, there's such issues like they, they, you know, they could say, you know, the, or you observe the black, they're white, they're brown, so you have this kind of racial identity. and What does that mean to them? Uh, and what's it going to mean for the counseling, if at all? Gay, cisgender, Christian, do they, how do they identify themselves? So that's always a part of what folks bring into it. And for me, this, as I do this kind of assessment and paying attention and listening, observing, um, it gives me a lens by which I can uh, address our own profe- and develop our own professional relationship then from a counseling perspective. Um, as I said before, too, sometimes it's a presenting problem it's uh, that they're coming in. Sometimes it will emerge as a significant issue during the context of that. But uh, my assessment and awareness of intersectionality uh, will affect the therapeutic relationships and It depends too on how a client will identify these issues as strengths or as weaknesses and it's not just an either or but also it's on a spectrum so so uh, that's what i listen for and that's how it gets presented to me and that kind of counseling um, uh, relationship as well and i'm always asking folks along these areas too about how much of that or how little of that do they want to talk about particularly the spirituality religion piece. Some come in expecting it, some don't wanna have anything to do with it. Some uh, will um, uh, see it as some significant interventions in, in counseling and some will just have a tendency to say that's okay, That's uh, I don't want to deal with that. So all these areas get presented in, the, in that way is how I, I see it.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the flexibility and intentionality that it sounds like you approach that process with. Thank you, Dr. Nations. Uh, and Dr. McCullough.
4: Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I think for me, um, having had um, the role of counselor and now teaching people who are going into counseling, it shows up in a lot of ways through the clients that we work with and also through the supervision process and and sometimes supervising um, a supervisor who is uh, supervising a counselor. And so um, asking the questions sort of like, can, briefly describing how these different aspects of identity show up in my professional work somehow feels like asking what it's like to work with people in some regards, because we all have a race, we all have a gender, we all have a spirituality or a religious orientation, even if it's non-religious, spiritual or religious orientation. And so I think intersectionality is a a piece of our work that we're constantly trying to discuss and get better at as counselors. And I think that um, there's the conversation about intersectionality and then there's like, when you really get up in it and look at it, it's, it's very tricky, right? Because as humans, we're kind of wanting to put things into containers so that we can uh, understand a particular experience. And sometimes we really need to get into that one experience because that's what's really salient for that client or that supervisee. And sometimes it's, it's kind of hanging on to some other aspects of their identity or experiences. And I think um, that, that intersectionality piece, it's, it's a really big question. And I, I feel like we've, we've seen it show up in the literature in the last really, um, it's, it's been showing up for a long time, but like an increase of it in the recent years, like five to 10 years. Um, and still when I'm talking to clients and participants in my research, there's a sense of people not feeling seen clearly or heard or feeling like they have to sort of put themselves in a particular container in order to be acceptable to talk to a person or maybe this place is where I talk about this and this place is where I talk about this like with my pastor I can talk about my spiritual needs and with my counselor I can talk about my gender identity but I can't talk about both of those things in one of those two places and so I think that that's um that's what really um, impassions me towards this work. And so we're always trying to figure out how to more holistically address the, the whole person coming into counseling and as a supervisee or a student. And I think that's that's a lot trickier than it seems. So hopefully we solve that problem by the end of today.
1: That's the goal, yeah, definitely hoping that we can just put it all behind us now. I appreciate that. Yeah, and and kind of going off of of what you were just kind of mentioning, I know that there are a lot of different areas and avenues that people might take to try and find resolution to some of their their challenges they may be facing. Um, This next question goes to you specifically, Dr. McCullough. Where do you see counseling meeting the needs of clients from different gender identities? And then additionally, what areas of growth do you feel exists when addressing gender differences in counseling?
4: Yeah, thank you, Bobby. I I think, This is such a good question and I, I have to think about it from many different hats that I wear. Um, and one that I can never take off that I'm always looking through as one as a trans man, as somebody who has has the lived experiences of having to go through and meet with counselors and experience things from the side of the counselor and from the side of the client. And, um, and I think that what, what I've seen in recent years and I I've, for me, I have a, a long history. I, I came out and, um, identified as male 20 in the 90s, like 20 some years ago. And so things are really different now in terms of how people access those um, points of care. And the conversation is actually a conversation that people are happening. In. And it's more a cultural conversation versus like happening in the basements of cafes around town when we found each other and met with each other. Um, but I think that some of the things, and again, the increase in literature and discussions and conference presentations around gender and gender identity have seen it it's been really uh, amazing in, in recent years and I think that we've we've as a profession developed a greater awareness of trans and non-binary people in counseling and um, there are more conversations and I think that's i think that's really powerful because before it was just invisibility and there wasn't anything um really to talk about and and if you you brought it up you were the only one in the room. Um, and I think kind of along with that um, yeah there's more content in counselor ed programs and um, there's more books, there's more articles, there's more, there's more things like that. And we already have a lot of really great frameworks in counseling to address the needs of trans and non-binary clients such as we have trans competencies and we have multicultural and social justice counseling competencies. We have ethical guidelines from the American Counseling Association and the American School Counseling Association. So I feel like that has begun, but I think that we have to take a step back a little bit because I think sometimes when we're dealing with a group that folks do not know a lot about, we sometimes flatten their experiences and think that we sort of have it figured out. Like if we've read a few things or been to a few counseling conferences, um, out here, I live in a really liberal bubble of the country in Portland, Oregon. So people tend to come from a place of having, feeling like they have a higher level of knowledge than they actually have. So we can't forget our humility in those conversations. We also can't forget the intersectional properties of those um, relationships. So again, like I said, we all have a race. We all have, a, you know, a disability orientation. We all have all these things, and and that really shapes an experience of a trans person. So as a white trans person, my experience is very different than that of a trans person of color, disabled trans person, black trans person. And so we we are doing, a, a I think um, not as good of a job of addressing the whole trans person, right? Again, this is sort of like, we, we think we've sort of have trans people figured out, but what we don't realize that trans people belong to many different groups and have many other different orientations and experiences. And I think um, one of the things that sort of haunts me is uh, um, I did a research, uh, I did some research a few years ago and I talked to a participant who was, said that he had, he felt like he had to get three different counselors to address him as a whole person. And he identified as a black trans man with disability. And he said he went to a, a, a gay white man because he wanted to address sort of the LGBT aspects of his identity, but that person wasn't comfortable about talking about race. And the ways that for him, you know, having to ch- switch from being seen and regarded as a black female in our culture and now being seen and regarded as a black male, he had a lot of things to unpack, which was related to his race and his trans identity. And then he went to see a black female counselor and she wasn't as well versed in some of the trans and LGBT stuff. And neither of those counselors addressed his disability at all. And so that's sort of sitting really heavy with me. And I feel like has become a driver a lot of my of a lot of my work with students and supervisees to help them address the whole person. So I think I think we're not doing such a good job with um, some of those aspects.
0: Yeah, thank you for those insights, Dr. McCullough, I think you're right, there is this kind of slippery slope of how we can address the whole person. Um, And it's not an easy task by any means, um, but it's something that we can all continue to work on um, as best as as possible. Um, And so kind of just outside of a counseling perspective and more from the pastoral side, uh, Reverend Kay, in, in what ways has your work highlighted the need to acknowledge and consider um, identity in helping those that who you work with?
2: No, definitely. So I, um, I, I don't really get the option of, or the luxury of um, picking which intersection I show up to. Just walking in the room is a cluster of intersections for me. And, but I'm deeply thankful that um, there are a lot of people who are just now being introduced to the idea of intersectionality. Um, I was kind of born here, right? And so in my work, and this is something that I've been having conversations with, not only for uh, our office, but for the department and for the division is to say, um, not just in my work, I need you to consider how those of us who live at these intersections have an additional job that other people do not have. So for example, I will have Black women seek me out for, I can go an entire semester and never have a spiritual conversation or someone come to me for the the purpose of being religious or spiritual outside of needing to identify with the the personhood of me being a Black woman. Um, Our counseling center on campus, and I have complained (laughs) about this, has one Black female. And they are doing these things to kind of make these movements, but I think they, they made some, some student movements. And I was like, no, 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 this, this isn't very healthy because our students have to start over. And so it literally creates this additional job, but it's not just me. It's also uh, other black persons who work in different departments who will have students just drop in because they're seeking out someone to say, here is what just happened. Can you believe this? You know?" And, and, and it's, yes, yes, I can. So it impacts um, my, my own work in that way, those the intersections of um, being a Black woman in academia um, and adding in the layers of, there's there so many intersections that we don't consider, especially within, um, I would say the Black community, which is by the time you hit academia, regardless of where your financial status is in, in life, because a lot of people would say, I'm on the borders of, of poverty. You have entered into this kind of middle-class livelihood that is a different, um, Arena for some people that they are still trying to navigate and the guilt that comes with it, the survivor's guilt. And so when you don't have someone in the counseling center or someone available who can understand the dynamics of, um, and you don't yet have the language to explain it to someone, we in a way we do more harm to people when we make them become the teachers for their own traumas. And so I was coming back, I made this note while Dr. McCullough was talking. And there's something that I personally do in my work, um, mostly because I remember that for for me, um, and I'm I'm trained in an area that believes in training up the next generation of ministers. And so I would say to all of you in counseling, go out, Find the next generation. Mention to people who occupy these intersections who say, I'm going into finance. Say, have you considered counseling? Like literally just introduce the idea. They may say, buzz off, I'm going to Wall Street, go away. But 10 years later, 20 years later, they're gonna say, you know what, there was a bug in my ear. I think I will go to counseling. I want to be to someone what I never had. And until you mention it and until you bring it up, it may have never crossed their minds. So for those of you in this work, Yes, bring it up. I, I don't care if that student says I want to be a gymnastics Olympian. Excellent. When well, you get done, want to be a counselor? You know, I, whatever it is, mention it, bring it up to them because even in counseling and I'm, and I'm getting there's so many and and correct me or fill it in in the chat. There's so many now like layers to 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 counseling. You have people who have you know, MSWs are uh, uh, social work and counseling, law degrees and counseling, divinity degrees and counseling. And uh, and I, I know a lot of people who have gone back to get uh, counseling degrees or certificates or certifications so that they can be certified in this work. Bring it up, train up the next generation, uh, because th- there are people waiting to to have further down the road, this is like back to the future, getting your time machines and go to the future and build up what the next generation needs now. Um, I do I do it all the time. Every year I give myself a quote. I'm like, I have to convince one student to go to Divinity School, one, at least one. And they will probably curse me to the day they die. No, not really, they, they, it's been good so far. But yeah, make it an agenda item to convince someone, especially those who live at those intersections, and and then I'm gonna be quiet because I'm a Baptist minister and you know we overtalk. But I was remembering, um, Rafe, as you were talking, and I remember my own experience with a therapist who I loved, I utterly loved her. And we did some great work working through um, childhood things. And I remember when I brought up some um, racialized things I was experiencing at work, and she said to me, well, I think all women experience that. All women feel that way in the workplace. And I remember in that moment saying, not only do I feel flattened, I feel deflated because once again, um, I'm having my experience kind of minimized and I'm, I'm positive she meant no harm. She just had reached her own limitations. So I know what it feels like to, to show up to someone and, 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 and then suddenly hit a wall because they simply cannot understand. So yes, when you have people who occupy many intersections and in Africa, they call it a cut the uh, which I think is French for uh, cut of food, which is the circle, you know, the, the, well, we just call them those circle outlets that have many roads and it's that circle kind of um, intersection. Um, when you find people who are there, who could get off at many different intersections and if you can convince them, consider counseling um, and whatever different variations there are, whether or not they choose it as a career or as an auxiliary career. I don't even know if that's possible. I hope so. Uh, encourage them to, to, to do that because there's someone that that really needs them to show up in their, with their full selves in a space that can really hold it.
0: Thank you Rev Kay. I love that and you know training up the next generation to be that person that you didn't necessarily have when you were growing up is so key, so important. Um especially in in the helping profession such as counseling. Um even in uh pastoral care it's still important to have someone who can, in some aspects, relate to you and identify similar to you. Um, And then you kind of just have that moment of bonding where you're like, you've been through it, I've been through it, I want to kind of emulate you and continue to help those next generations. Um, So thank you for that. And the key word is intersectionality. Um, And so in terms of religion and spirituality, I think there is a little bit of an intersection uh, where they get drawn together. And then there's sometimes a bracket between like, no religion's one thing and spirituality is another thing. Um, so Dr. Nations, is are religion and spirituality the same thing? Are they different? Um, and how do they kind of play a role in your counseling relationships?
3: Um, That's a good question. And um, I struggle with having a a very concise, clear definition of that because they do overlap when you start using those. One of the best definitions I received one time um, that was so succinct and poignant came from uh, a person attending a group. I used to work in a psychiatric hospital and I would do the religious spiritual component of it a group, a religious spiritual group in the uh, addictions unit. And what I really discovered in working with so many folks with the, certainly we're talking about the intersectionality, but the the issues that they were dealing with too, many of them were struggling with um, understanding this concept of religion. Some had a religious history that was harmful, judgmental. Some had one that was very supportive, but yet didn't fit um, kind of their belief at the time. So um, I asked that question. I'd always start out because I think it is important for us to to determine what is the difference between uh, spirituality and religion. And one of the participants uh, answered my question. I said, what what is the difference between spirituality and religion? He says, I've got a definition. I said, what's that? He says, religion is what keeps us from going to hell. Spirituality is for those who have been there. (laughs) And that's, I mean, he's speaking the truth from where from his own experience. But I see religion on some levels like this. It's it, it has it's a more codified belief. It's more of a practice and a participation element in a person's life. It's more about an organized type of uh, religion, of beliefs, of practices. It's usually shared in a community or a group. Uh, It has uh, some holy writ or some scripture that it uh, will follow. And religion has some more of an organizational kind of aspect to it. Uh, I see that worked out at times when uh, folks are dealing, particularly working with couples, how some folks will talk about their participation in the religious community. And one person will have a greater desire for participation and the other will not. So sometimes that gets to be a big issue that um, we talk about sometimes. And spirituality, I think of it more like an individual practice, even though it can, once again, I say these overlap, it can be in a community. Uh, but it's more about, for me, a sense of transcendence, uh, about knowledge and love and meaning and peace and hope, uh, about being connected with others in some way, about compassion and wellness and and wholeness. So that's what I think of as that type of aspect of dealing with spirituality when I'm working with. Uh, clients around, around the areas that we're looking at right now. Uh, So that's, that's something is, it's, it's really important once again, to be able to define what am I working with? Is it a religious issue? Is it a spiritual issue? And realize too, that they may overlap, but they'll present themselves in different ways in, in, in counseling. And um, the role in counseling for me is just really Trying to define, you know, or do they want to talk about a religious kind of issue? Is it something that about their belief, about their practice, about uh, uh, about um, their their faith in that way? And sometimes we start looking even at the gender issues about how religion will sometimes be very um, um, judgmental towards the gender identification, or even even if, if you look at the uh, heterosexual kind. Of, kinds of relationships that there's some religions that will not allow women to be able to participate in certain aspects of the ministry or the church or to be part of that or there's a a, a patriarchal component to it where there's a um you know you've got to the man is the head of the household and the woman has to do that and then there's all kinds of aspects of that that um that that presents itself in counseling. What I need to do is to be respectful of where they are and what is being presented. And that's something that how it comes out there too, is to look at uh, being in concert with the client's belief system in that way. And also in dealing with uh, folks that uh, come in with a variety of, of gender identifications of, of, of different sexuality kinds of issues and such things like that. Um, I really pay attention to being uh, gender uh, dealing with the gender differences is to really just be um, sensitive to them, to their point of view, to see where they are, how how do they experience that? What kind of meaning does it come out in that? How are they, once again, I keep going back to, is it a source of support for them, the religion or or spirituality? is a source of support? Uh, and then, if so, those are some of the interventions that we can work with or not. If it's a source of harm or a source that has not been uh, very supportive in their lives, then we might look at some ways of, of transitioning away from that or not relying on that as a source of support if it's going to continue in that way. So sometimes there's grief that's involved in that, there's a, a transitioning away into, into different types of uh, spiritual beliefs, and that becomes more spiritual once we start leaving the religious aspect. I can talk all day about this, but that's that's. let me stop there because that's that's basically how I view it and how I see it right now, how it's appearing in my, in my practice.
1: Yeah, it sounds again, like uh, it's a very much an individualized experience and it's kind of exploring those conflicts that might be at work for an individual. Uh, I appreciate that. And kind of going off of that, and um, this is gonna be to all of you, but we'll start back with you, Dr. Patience. I know you just had your, your shot, but you'll get another one here in a second. Um, knowing kind of the religion and spirituality piece, how has gender influenced your connections and interventions with respect to counseling relationships, uh, that have incorporated religious or spiritual aspects?
3: Um, what I find out too, is that there's been, I pay attention to a lot of, it's, it's a really growing area for me in my understanding because there's so much, uh, as Dr. McCulloch said, there's so much coming out now of research and so much attention to uh, gender identity. So for me, it's an exciting, growing edge. For me, I'm I'm still a uh, uh, you know at, at the growing edge because once again, I've come from a traditional kind of church setting where I'm seeing couples, and 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 I'm very much aware of that. My reading around research is that that gender differences uh, have been well documented. We're seeing a lot more females in that standpoint. Uh, to want to report frequent attendance and religious practices. And spirituality seems to be more along the female gender way, let's get in, the, in the heterosexual world at times. And so uh, what I find out too is that gender is central to most religious beliefs and religious orders. There's a very well-defined um, understanding of what it means to be uh, a specific person um, uh, gender in, in in the in the religious realm and religious force. So it does have a significant impact upon relationships. And just going back once again, too, is, is just really trying to pay attention to a client's belief system and how has that impacted their intersectionality of all the areas that we're talking about. But since we're talking about gender, how have they learned to understand their own sense of gender from their spiritual and religious history? So I spend some time talking about that and seeing, you know, is it something that's been very affirming? Is it something that's been uh, in some ways uh, uh, negative and and, and what kind of impact does it have on them? Um, It's always, um, for me, interesting how the the discussions and understanding of gender identification will affect their mental health, social connections, um, relationships, um, the relationship with their spiritual community, and the social support that folks have. So those are things that I really pay attention to with working with with gender um, within the counseling relationships.
1: Thank you, Dr. Nations. I appreciate those insights. And um, again, we'll we'll give it a toss up to whoever, whoever would like to follow that one up.
2: I'll jump in here, um, and I want to make sure I'm, I'm hearing the, the the question correctly. I tried to write it down, but how does gender show up? Um, Repeat the question so I can make sure I'm answering the right thing.
1: Absolutely. And this might look differently based on your response uh, in a counseling context versus pastoral counseling. Um, But how has gender influenced your connections and interventions with respect to counseling relationships that have incorporated religious or spiritual aspects?
2: So um, for me, a lot of the time when I end up in these pastoral conversations with people and, and gender is the leading conversation. I'm going to do that again. Five years ago, mm-hmm, the leading part of, of genderized conversations were usually with women coming to uh, discuss how they feel ostracized based upon their gender, how they feel put upon either by religious bodies or even within uh, romantic relationships based upon uh, gender roles and gender ideas and how they are genderized into um, particular behaviors. You know, really usually around the, uh, the conversations of how they wish to show up sexually But because of gender identity, well, no, because of gender roles and also uh, gender boundaries. They could not uh, express themselves in ways that they felt were healthy, um, but also align them religiously or spiritual, but basically people wanted to fake the funk, right? (laughs) In in short, and figuring out where are the lines where I can stay authentic, but also be considered, uh, for lack of better terms, a good girl. In the last um, two years, I am deeply excited for the conversations around gender for my students who um, I keep as mentors. I, I like to keep someone younger than me as a mentor to check me consistently when my language isn't up to date around gender and gender identity and sexual and sexual identities. Um, it is—it is a, I don't say it's a learning curve. No, it's just a continued learning. It's an aspect of the work that I have to do and so making sure that um, I am using language, depending on who I'm, not just depending on who I'm speaking to, but making sure it stays level across the board, that I'm staying in the seat of teacher making, even if the person isn't coming to be taught, but making sure that they're consistently making room so that um, everyone can be present. And so it, it shows up in these different different ways. So whether people like it or not, um, <laughs> when you come to me, you're gonna, I'm, be as expanded as I can be expanded. So it's about this constant renewal of language and of um, learning that there are those who have trials and difficulties that are beyond me. It's about making sure that uh, for me, especially within gender and speaking to women, especially to black women and the black community can be very slothful with LGBTQ plus issues, but making sure that we're consistently having the conversation about when we say a women's event, to whom are we are we actually inviting? Who who are we talking about? And making sure we're having the nuanced and difficult conversations for people who feel that they have just been given space. And they're like, oh, and now we need to expand the space. And I'm like, well, let's talk about what's problematic about this conversation. And so gender shows up in this way. You know, as a a cisgender woman, I have a lot of privilege here in this conversation, and I have to also understand that that is the case going into every conversation, but also introducing that idea. So it shows up in this way where, for me, um, finding out where where the boundaries are, and I say boundaries because there's always a boundary someone has set in place. So finding out where those fringes, where the boundaries are and making sure I stay there on the peripheries with those who feel the least, the last and the left out and making sure they're constantly in the conversations um, with the people who are privileged enough in whatever moment to be empowered enough to decide where the center and where the gravitational pull is. So um, so yeah, you have women who uh, identify as women and women who identify as women, but do not prefer the pronouns of, of she, her, hers. And learning this and, and keeping with the language and making sure, um, that as they say in the medical field, I, I, that I do no harm, but making sure I'm equipped to, to not do the harm, uh, making sure I teach people and teach myself how to apologize. You misgender someone, you apologize. You go, you, you keep moving. You, if you make the mistake again, you apologize. You, you keep moving, you keep moving in this and you will get it right. Not one day get it right. And in the words of a friend, don't try to get it right, get it right. <laughs> And, and encourage people not to try, no, nope, get it right. So, and we make mistakes, but for me to to, to model what it's like to make a mistake and, and get back up. Um, and, and so it, it shows up in those ways for me.
1: Thank you, Reverend Kay. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of optimism about the future as well as like a desire to raise your awareness around these topics and continuing that growth. And I think that kind of goes in line with some of the things you were saying Dr. Nation's regarding growth edges appreciate that. Um, and lastly, uh, Dr. McCullough, uh, your thoughts on that, that question. If I need to repeat it, let me know.
4: I think I have a sense of the question, but we'll see what happens. Um, <clears throat> but I think that, um, I think what, what makes me think of is uh, a lot of stuff that comes up around gender obviously comes up around through LGBTQ and trans issues. And I think that Sometimes like the awareness piece is really key. And I I really loved what you said, um, Reverend Kay about, um, just kind of basically tripping and falling and picking yourself up and dusting yourself off and keep moving forward rather than getting kind of paralyzed in that. And I think sometimes, you know, counselors who have more of a, a religious orientation that may have had as the underpinnings that, you know, being queer and trans is sinful may not be able, may really struggle to address the trans and queer identity at all in in the counseling. And then you have folks who maybe have been harmed by religious institutions or identify as not religious or have had kind of like a negative antagonistic relationship that sometimes don't understand um, how to address the spiritual and religious needs of their trans um, and non-binary clients and I think that um, that's really important, like we're sometimes not acknowledging sort of in, in some way more of a, a, a collective religious trauma that has happened to a lot of LGBTQ communities, um, sometimes misapplied, right, where people are coming from, from those uh, angles. And I think that sometimes uh, we, if we're not addressing spiritual and religious um, concerns for our trans and non-binary clients, we're, we're missing the mark entirely and I think sometimes there's an assumption that we're going to avoid that because well we don't want to bring up that because that's maybe really painful or that's maybe they maybe they're just I just assume they're not religious at all so we're just not going to talk about that just a lot of assumptions that are made and I think sometimes you know we gotta we have to get up in that you know I I mean I, I grew up in a religious family and I had a family member recently say to me why don't you go to church anymore you know there there are so many catholic churches who try to be open and welcoming now to lgbtq folks it's really different than it used to be and I, I think about that you know because and honestly for folks who are kind of struggling with those things it takes a lot to get into that space of contemplation and safety and as also you said um reverend k about making the space big enough for people to come into and feel comfortable or feel like they can kind of grow in that space. It's it's different to come into a space where you're being tolerated versus a space where you can feel like open to grow like that, to be able to thrive and really grow in that takes a lot more than just tolerance. And so I think that some of that needs to be unpacked with some of our um, trans and, and LGBTQ uh, spectrum clients. And so that's kind of how I see that going.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that, like kind of, It's kind of like mapping the directions that we need to go in 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 order to really create those spaces. I really appreciate that. Um, And so I've heard some of the optimism from from all of you and like kind of these concerns about how we can grow and get better. Um, Are there some emerging trends or patterns that you've noticed um, that are more concerning uh, more recently that we need to be aware of as counselors and as professionals? And we can start back with you, uh, Dr. McCullough, if that's okay.
4: Sure. I think um, some of the emerging trends and patterns that some people are maybe more aware of than others, but there is a firestorm of bills that are being launched throughout the United States and more than 10 states that are using sort of religious rationales and pseudoscience type of information (laughs) to block Uh, access particularly for trans youth to care and their families to transition care and in some cases uh, criminalizing providers and or criminalizing parents for trying to access those care uh, options which are really um, uh, they really prevent uh, suicide and so I think that that's that's something that we really need to kind of reckon with as you know communities and as people who sometimes have more positional power in our communities who can uh, make a difference and have these conversations because um, it's in sort of the, the, the damage that is done through like having even though if, if that's not happening in a particular youth state seeing the map light up in other areas and feel like it's coming for you kind of thing when they're already feeling like they're having a hard time Um, getting through. And so I think that sort of gets to the outside of the office, the more community oriented work that we really need to do. And I think that that's, that's a big concern. We need to kind of set up and pay attention to.
1: Yeah, thank you. I think that's definitely an area of of getting some significant advocacy and and putting our heads together to figure out how we can better raise awareness around that topic. Thank you.
3: Um, I'll go. That's okay. Um, I, I totally agree with the legislation that's coming out now. That's a good point, Dr. McCullough makes, because it just seems to be so so harmful and targeted toward trans and LGBTQ. And there's something going on even in Winston Salem right now that is is hopeful about uh, looking at uh, all about uh, anti discrimination on all levels. So there's 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 still a hopefulness in the midst of that. But I'm seeing a lot more in the, in that that way. Um, some of the other things, too, I've, I'm finding out that um, I, I work with religious groups and even my own denomination, you uh, United Methodist Church, is, going, is addressing the sexuality issue in a way that's going to split. We're going to be split into uh, two different types of denominations. And what that's looking like, I don't know. We're about two years away. But uh, spending time with uh, urban and rural churches, I'm 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 so much more sensitive to how folks are having this kind of passion around defining themselves along these uh, dualistic kind of views theologically, and it's it's representative as well. It's reflecting of what's going on politically in our. Uh, country as well. So I'm seeing that as a theme that's emerging. There's a, there's continues to be a rise in suicides with our adolescents and young people, the LGBTQ trends. And so um, we're seeing that the statistics as counselors paying a lot of attention to that and trying to to, to be sensitive to that as well. Um, so those are just some of the trends that I, and patterns that I've noticed coming up. That's kind of on my radar and concerns me a lot right now.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. In this time of feeling kind of isolated for a lot of us, I feel like having these dual, you know, dualistic nature to to our political and religious beliefs, I feel like that can make people feel even more isolated and bring up those risks of suicide and, and other really bad outcomes as well. So I appreciate you bringing those up. Thank you, Dr. Nations. And Reverend Kay?
2: I'm gonna yield my time back to the people in case they have questions.
1: Perfect, thank you so
0: much. Yes, Alicia, you got a question?
5: I do, yes. Um sorry, I, I I lost I'm so sorry, technology. There we go. Um I've often found myself um being a part of multiple multiple identities. Um I was an American who grew up overseas. Um I'm a Navy veteran. And as a veteran, I've always found that particular identity really to be um a challenge um trying to find my place in military culture. Also, in respect to um, my place with my gender in the military, Um, I'm also a mother, um, and with the conversations that have been happening recently, um, some that have been largely negative in some circles, concerning women and pregnancy in the military, how do you address the pain and uncertainty a client has when dealing with internal conflicts and maybe multiple identities they have in religious, gender, and cultural identities?
2: I'll jump out here first and then I'll let the counselors go. Um, mostly because I, I tell people when they come to, to, to me, like for example, Alicia, if you came to um, our office for training, we, we let them know that we're a little bit different than a counseling center. And that in the fact that we're able to be interventionist um, and to walk with you through the experience. So my first question would be, who, who are these people? Whose walls are we knocking down today? Um, and it sounds like we're going against an entire government. So Um, For the care or the approach that I would take and often take, and it's probably why I'm always exhausted, uh, when people talk about the parameters and the barriers, are figuring out, um, in the words of uh, James Forbes, who was former pastor of Riverside Church up in New York, um, when there's an issue. And he, he gave this example of the babies in the river. He said, you know, word goes out, there's babies in the river. And a church group goes down and get a van and they go down to the river and they immediately join hands and start praying, Lord, please help those babies get out of the river. Now the church man pulls up, they see them praying and they say, first of all, let's get in the river and get the babies out of the river. But then there's a third group that goes up the stream and they say, let's find out who's throwing babies in the river. And then I like to take it a little bit further and say, and then someone needs to say, when they're out of the river, let's make sure we check their lungs for any damages that they may have incurred that they will have uh, damages of much later and further down the line. So for, for me, in, in hearing your story those different identities, especially where there are barriers, I gravitate towards those barriers to say, what can we heal um, in the work that we can do together, but also where can we go um, what team do we need to kind of confront those barriers if that is the only way that the healing can take place? To say, you know, um, in, in the terms of the example of the babies in the river, if you say you know let's go up the river to find out, you know who's throwing the babies in the river uh, because you may say, I may not be able to affect things for myself, but if I can affect it for future generations, that may be the healing that I need um, in the moment. But also figuring out how can I give you agency or empower you, to, to kind of go head on into those things versus just not just join you in them, but in, enable you to do those things. And I'm going to give it to the counselors because they, they come from a very different angle.
4: I can go. I think, you know, it, it depends on what what the focus is. So I would work with somebody to kind of unpack some of those things and figure out where are they at with this? Is it something where you just need to Um, have be be witnessed and tell your story is it something where you're kind of in a place where it's an actionable thing where you want to take action on things or, or change things or systemic change and how can we partner together on that or is it is it something where we can process sort of the experiences that you're having and or talk about sort of how you can access community healing, right? Because sometimes there's, there's a time when you only want to be around people like you to process what's happening to you in, in various roles. And so I guess I would, I would look at that, some of those things and see kind of what, what your goals are, what, what's a, a place where you would want to start or a person who is presenting with those kind of um, situations is starting at.
3: And I, I totally agree with Dr. McCullough in that way, because that's just to find out where, where they are and what that's about with them. I, I tend to work from an attachment uh, stance at times. So when folks are looking at these various aspects of their own sense of self and identity, um, some of the things I find helpful is being able to find out where, where, where is it that you feel some connection with what you're experiencing? Where is it giving you that kind of energy and affirmation and, and, and positive regard in that and, and build on that? And then where, where is it creating distance? Not only that from externally, but also internally when we start looking at this that sense of identity and the, the various identities that we, we we're aware of to look at what gives us connection and what uh, what creates distance. So that's a very simple way to look at it, but that's one way that I think about it. Thank you, Alicia, for that question.
1: Any other questions? If if speaker panelists, you're willing to have more questions. I know we're a little over the 7 o'clock time. Um,
5: I have a question. Can I ask Is that okay? Um, I was really struck um, by your example, Dr. K. Um, Reverend Kay, of the, um, the counselor who kind of, you said, like, reached her limit and like you were minimized and flattened. And you were like, I'm sure she meant no harm, but it really seemed like she was just had like reached her limitation, was coming up against her limitation. And so, I mean, my sort of reflection on that is like, am, am I minimizing or flattening others because I've reached my limitation? Um, And when, and or even not am I, but when and where am I doing that, (laughs) you know? Um, And I wondered what else, like what other kind of um, response, I mean, I can imagine some other responses in that scenario that would have been helpful for her to say instead of what she said. But I just wonder, is there just always going to be that limitation where we won't even be able to say anything else, you know? Or like, what's you know, actually, the alternative? That's
2: a good question. And and actually I'm gonna to toss back some questions because I don't know the answer for your field. So for, for us, and again, it comes down to training. Um, I, I love to boast and brag that I've had great training. I've, I've been blessed to have great mentors. And something that, um, I, I, I was an associate pastor in New York, in Brooklyn, and something that the senior pastor really wanted to make sure i walked away with was he he would say don't preach further than you've seen you'll be exposed if you preach further than you've seen and and that was colloquial to say you know don't don't try to counsel married people about marriage (laughs) beyond anything that you tell them isn't textbook if you're not married because i wasn't married at the time um or you know tell people how to raise their children if you don't have any make sure you tell them everything you're saying is from a textbook Um, Or to teach people about how to have faith in the direst of situations if I've not seen the direst of situations. So you would say preach as far as you can see. So for me, and again, a different field, when a student comes in and they are having a life experience that is not only further than I have seen, it is further than an experience that I can have, I at least have the ability to say, you know what we have reached a place to say I want to walk with you is it okay if someone else joins us in this walk and then I'll phone a friend um I literally keep a rolodex of friends for for multiple situations and um and if they're comfortable adding someone to the conversation then you know we we look to that if they are not I do the best that I can to to um basically waterboard myself with as much information and experiences and again try to redirect to, to add someone to the conversation not to walk away from it or to hand them off but to ask if they're okay if someone else is added to the conversation uh, simply because i don't wish to do any harm or to start becoming a bobblehead where i'm just nodding and, and with nothing to add out of my own fear but i'm not sure if in counseling can you all do that in counseling can you Add another person to the conversation, I, I don't know what your parameters are.
4: Yeah, it depends on on the client, uh, I think, and what their needs are. But I I think kind of, and in, in also to kind of loop in what you were saying, Reverend Kay, and address Courtney's question, too, is um, I think that sometimes we don't know when we're bumping up against that, too. You know, like, it's one thing to be able to reach out and get those resources and find to be to be faced with something that happens like maybe we microaggress a client and we experience their reaction and or they tell us directly or somebody in our lives Um, and then we can act upon that but a lot of times there's a lot of stuff that um you know i was telling my friend the other day i said you know i can read something that's not about my experience like a hundred times in academic texts and then i can see it played out in front of me in a room and maybe on the third or fourth time I see it after I've read 100 texts I can actually pick it out and say what I'm seeing and then be able to call it out and so for me and I, I I sometimes consider myself kind of late to the party on that in some ways because I feel like I need to take in a lot of information and then see it and experience it but I think sometimes we're just not going to know uh, what our limits are where where we're bumping up against some of those and so it's just that constant process of keeping learning and keeping in it and being willing to trip and fall and pick up and keep going and not get paralyzed by that.
3: Yeah, I don't have too much to add to that because that's that's, I think Reverend Kay and Dr. McCullough answered answered it very well. Um, I I think that's a big part of it. I'm, I'm just always aware of how little I do know about my clients at times and how often I need to really pay attention to our therapeutic relationship and how that's going in such a way that they're feeling comfortable and safe enough to um, make me aware of some things. And so I'm constantly growing and learning and picking up on how the relationship's going Just to be able to feel comfortable enough and safe enough to ask questions at times, but I don't know.
2: I'm going to come back in. Um, and in. And again, I don't know if this can apply across practice but something um, that we try to practice, at least for our ministry group, is um, healer humility, which can be difficult um, when, when you are in the seat of the healer. So to, to, to expand that language, uh, to, to understand we are not, cannot be the be all end all to all people, but to, to have healer humility and to be able to know that when I, and people would say, "Where are those boundaries?" When when you push into a situation where you are, you have asked the person to uh, say more about that more than once, it's time you've hit the wall. <laughs> That's how you know when you've hit the wall. When, um, and I can say, for example, I know when I've been in um, a moment where we went from talking theology and spirituality, and I had a um, white male who um, was grappling with his own sexuality, but also figuring out how to, as we were going into COVID, how to go home and live in his truth with family um, and and the healthiest way to do that. I knew that for me, it would be harmful to say, you know, you go head on at it. No, I said, is it okay? If I loop someone in who I know is qualified to have this conversation with you because they have had this lived experience, Who knows what it's like coming from a conservative Catholic family living in your truth here but having to return home I am not aware of what the psychological harm is going to be but I know someone who who is well versed in this and not only if they cannot they can connect someone else to journey with you who could actually take over this conversation because even I won't know what care you need next so to close it healer humility at whatever point where you, you have to either make a note to Google something later or to say, say more about that, you hit the wall. So healer humility might might be the, the word that we take away.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Reverend Kay, for that takeaway. I think that's such a, a powerful, you know, linking of so many things we've talked about today, this healer humility. I think if we enter in with healer humility and you know, just understanding the advocacy issues, the the way that we can address our clients. The way that we can consider these issues and from a broader perspective. And I think something else, uh, Dr. McCullough, that you mentioned about um, just recognizing that intersectionality is normal. You know, I think we think about it as, as this big topic that we have to tackle, but it's really every individual we ever interact with intersectionality is at work. And so just recognizing these things as a norm and part of our experience. Um, but thank you so much uh, panelists for coming with us participants for you know sticking it out with us 13 minutes over time uh, thank you everyone for being involved in this and um, we hope you, you come away with you know some deepened understandings in, in some of these topics I did want to just throw it out there um, April 15th we will be having our keynote uh, Dr. Norma day will be coming. She'll be trying to tie together all these topics we've addressed over the last three sessions. Um, we invite all that are interested to come. So panelists, feel free to join us as well uh, if you're interested. And thank you so much again. This was wonderful. I, I know I'm inspired. Um, very powerful messages. Thank you so much, everyone.